I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. Wishing you happy holidays of whatever sort are ethnically opposite here from the Great Concavity. All right, welcome back, y'all, to uh, episode 49.2. Last time on point one, we were talking about the Don DeLillo, David Foster Wallace letters from the Ransom Archive. And I think, Matt, we only got through about four letters in an hour and a half. So let's see if we can cover a bit more ground today. (laughs) Yes, I think last time we discovered we had a lot more to say and we had a lot more notes on these letters and... um, Part of the problem is I don't remember exactly everything that we said, so uh, apologies in advance if we do repeat a little bit, um, but also recognize that maybe not everyone listened to that last episode, (laughs) but if you are interested in talking or listening to us talk about Don DeLillo and Dave Foster Wallace, you're in the right place, although Dave, there is another episode of this somewhere. What is it called? Um. 49.1 there you you mean oh yeah so if you want some more context for what's going on here probably a good idea to go back and listen to the last episode and uh and because we're just going to dive in in medias res here from where we left off last time hopefully this will be the last installment of the letters i think we can do it um in in an economical way today matt time wise yes so uh the two episodes (laughs) is about all i have to say on these letters um i do think they're important we did talk about them chronologically last yeah. time. So when you say we talked uh, about four letters chronologically, how far in the correspondence timeline does that get us? Right. So we left off at the May 1995 letter, and they started in June of 1992. So four letters in three years or so. Okay. And so and they go, we think, until about 2007, right? We couldn't find one from 2008 uh as far as we know right yeah there are quite a number of undated ones there but july 2007 is the last dated one that i could find and then i would assume that some of them are maybe after that but it's hard to know exactly so right yeah and so 1995 is um wallace has submitted a draft of infinite jests and i think by what did you say may of 1995 he has submitted his final um edits and they have in fact already by that point made galleys are making galleys of the book um Mm. that summer and starting to promote it with long lead time publications getting Uh it to reviewers who i think got galleys in the fall of 1995 Mm-hmm. And the first reviews, you know, were timed with publication early February in 1996. So that's the context. And that's a perfect segue into the next letter we have, which is September 95, um, in which Wallace says that Franzen brought a bound manuscript of My Thing, which is Infinite Jest, and to DeLillo and apparently made an explosive sound hitting his stoop. In New York, and he says, I know what the fringes of New York are like, and apologize for any early morning alarm. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I mean, that's as in like a gunshot going off. That's cute. Um, Yeah. 
And so th- Peach sends it to DeLillo. Um, and we get the sense that Wallace is like, you know, very tentative about DeLillo reading, reading this thing. Like any, any idea that he has of DeLillo reading anything he's written is ultimately so flattering that he can't even handle it. And yet DeLillo never blurbs his books, I believe. Yeah, there's not one, hey? Mm-mm. Hmm. Yeah, and I can't. None come to mind for me either. And I think that he says something that he won't blurb a friend's book. And I think maybe I'm wrong, but Wallace uses that line for some other people as a defense hmm. of why he won't blurb their books. <laughs> so he's cribnet from DeLillo. Nice. Uh, I think he 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 adopted it. Might yeah. have got it from someone else, but yeah. Um, yeah. The mention of Franzen too. I think we mentioned this in the last episode, but you know there have to be in maybe an equal number of letters to Jonathan Franzen from Don DeLillo, mm-hmm. and you know difference here. Obviously, Franzen's still alive, still maybe corresponds with Don DeLillo. Mm-hmm. Uh, are these in the DeLillo archive papers? Is I there a folder know. of this? I have to admit, I don't know. I would huh. say uh, no, that yeah. uh, whatever letters DeLillo sent to Franzen, Franzen still has. I yeah. doubt that. Because they're Franzen, both still alive. I doubt sense. that Franzen <laughs> sent him copies back of the letters he wrote, and I doubt DeLillo kept copies of the letters he wrote to Franzen. Um. But I guess what I'm speculating on is like someday we will see <laughs> those whenever Franzen sells his archive, which is like mm-hmm. not uncommon for living writers to do, even ones yeah. at that age. And it's something right. that, you know, I wonder if the Ransom Center has pursued with Franzen because it would make sense to sort sure. of fit that context with the Wallace letters that they have and the yeah. and DeLillo. DeLillo letters. Totally. And Gordon yeah, Lish. So they also have all of the the Gordon Lish, you know, Raymond Carver stuff. And mm-hmm. that that is kind of detailed in Tim Greenland's new book, right. The Art of Editing, yeah. which half of the book is about Gordon Lish and Raymond Carver. And the right. other half is about Wallace and Peach. And mm-hmm. uh, basically all of that or a lot of that is at the Ransom Center. Um mm-hmm. I have to admit, I'm way less interested in those friends and letters than I am. <laughs> you don't say the Wallace letters. <laughs> Maybe that's self-apparent. Did you see that tweet from Sheila Liming that said she's reading that friends and piece on climate change and quoted that part? Like, I saw you pinned to the tweet, Sheila Liming. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, yeah, you pinned the tweet about he will be dead. Despite the, what is it, like, the abhorrent fact that I will be dead forever or something like that. (laughs) Anyways, um, we don't wish friends in any actual real harm in this world, but it's it's fun to joke about for some reason. Uh, What else is going on in that letter in the fall of 1995? Yeah, so Wallace says that something to the effect that um, even though DeLillo wrote that Guggenheim thing for him, uh, he doesn't have any expectation that he'd read a percussively heavy bound manuscript with a cover that's troubling to me, identical to the passenger safety card on American Airlines flights. Uh, as to what cover that's referring to, 
Do you know what the galley covers look like? I mean, it's that? pretty similar, just the clouds, right? It's just going to yeah. be talking about the clouds. There's a little gray inset thing, but... Right. Um, so it makes it, me wonder how much say Wallace had over the cover image, and probably not a lot. No. I mean, I'm. he advocated, you know, for that, um, that image of Fritz Lang. So Fritz Lang, who directed the cast of Metropolis, um, oh, yeah. he wanted to use... A specific photo of Fritz Lang um, and then Michael Peach said in an interview that uh, he Wallace proposed using a photo of a giant modern sculpture made of industrial trash uh, <laughs> kind of like the ask me fans you would think blowing right. trash but yeah. uh, apparently Little Brown thought that was uh, too subtle and detailed to work as a cover image so mm-hmm. um they so are. you know clouds clouds articulate the themes and the plot better than something that's actually in the book i guess well you know the clouds actually are a mention of uh i think in lateral alice moore's office on the wallpaper there's oh yeah clouds right. on the wall that's there true. so it's a pretty that's pretty inside though pretty <laughs> more subtle than... nod <laughs> yeah. yeah um uh, you know the a lot of the imagery of the book has now been associated with those clouds like yeah. the first italian translation which was the first translation of the book also had clouds on it mm-hmm. um uh, and you know when we did the greg carlisle book elegant complexity we put clouds mm-hmm. on it and i remember talking right. with greg about what to do with the cover of elegant complexity and he said mm-hmm. you know we imagined students using it like oh all this grab this book with clouds on it and i need my other clouds book (laughs) yeah just making that double associate them basic connection um but i I also have you know dave this reminds me of another story of um when i lived in new york i applied to work as a marketing assistant at little brown Mm -hmm. um maybe it was like marketing assistant manager the department or something it was like mid-level job i thought i was qualified for obviously i didn't get it but i worked in publishing (laughs) at the time and i interviewed with the woman who was a director of marketing there and um we were talking about specific marketing campaigns and i basically wanted to just use this whole interview as an excuse to ask her about the marketing campaign for infinite jest (laughs) for infinite jest in the fall of 1995 this checks out yeah and um she was very dismissive of it. So they had this whole huh. campaign then that was like teasers with postcards and right. like yeah, I remember this postcard on the front would have a clouds and it would say like infinite gratitude or infinite, you know, <laughs> intrigue or infinite mystery. And like they would send these out to booksellers who would just have no fucking clue what it said. You know, they would have no idea. Yeah. Um, right. And again, 1995, you got to think, okay, Google does not exist. Most people do not know how to send an email. You know, they have a command line interface at the university library, if that. (laughs) Um, And just, you know, Amazon.com maybe was founded that year, or maybe it just sold books the year before. Like, it was a very new Mm. thing. So most book marketing was physical direct mail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I asked her about that, campaign because at the time it was widely considered like very successful and actually Mm. really helped hype up the book is like the big freaking thing Mm -hmm. um 
and you know, I interviewed with her in maybe like 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, that, that it's just so old school. That would never work anymore. <laughs> that yeah. was, that was maybe even a bad idea. And I really mm-hmm. hated that. And it was, it's just not like of the modern time. Like, the whole industry had changed so much that she was just like, no, you could never promote a book like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And like the implication was not just that the marketing campaign was uh, a thing of the past, but like, but the book itself was promoting a book like that, especially Mm -hmm. in that way would never happen anymore. Yeah. And uh, I was very demoralized after that because I just thought like, (laughs) um, not only did you not get the job, but (laughs) I mean, it just felt like there's not, you know, it was not a very visionary thing. And like, hmm. it sounds shitty, but like, I'll challenge you to name a book, you know, published around that time of 2000, 2001, 2002, that is, uh, you know, equal to Infinite Jazz. So of course, I think there are none, um, mm-hmm. but like big publishers pulled, you know, this has always been the thing. Like they rely on big bestsellers, like Harry Potter came along late nineties mm-hmm. and and made a ton of money. And usually what publishers did is spend that money on publishing like mid-list stuff. And there's a big debate in publishing forever of, you know, is that the right model? And mm-hmm. I think that it is because, right. um, it allows those people, at, you know, the mid-list, if you can spend money on marketing, those books mm-hmm. allows them to eat and, you know, right. JK Rowling sure. can still be a billionaire. Yeah. Right. Well, underworld came out in 97 similar in scope size and in some ways themes to infinite jest. It's true. So you and I challenged mean, me. Well, that's true. There's and I would answer. say, I think, you know, the way that that book was marketed was a lot different because of who DeLillo was. Yeah. I have no idea how that book was marketed. Um, I think it was way less effective. It was considered yeah. a book for like fans of DeLillo and other mm-hmm. nerds. And, uh, <laughs> you know, are and those, like how many people actually read exclusive? it? Well, I mean, how many people actually read it? Like the the yeah. image of Wallace helped sell Infinite Jest. Sure. The image of Delillo is like it's not helping anyone. It's not helping the publisher for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I mean, Although I mean, there's some pretty cool photos of Delillo where he looks like a, an old cowboy, like at the barn, you know. Yeah. All right. He's got his old leather on. Uh, what I was gonna say is not it's more comparable, same. like 2000, whenever uh, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius was published, oh, yeah. and then 2001. When the corrections was published, again, a little bit different, but a lot of hype. Um, mm. And, you know, corrections went on to win the National Book Award and be on Oprah. Mm. Uh, obviously, Reluctantly. None, of, none of that for Wallace, right? Like, yeah, yeah. people bought into the hype, but didn't really read the book. Right. Um, There's a part about that coming up in one of the letters where Wallace talks about people who are just interviewing him about the hype around yeah. the book and not the it's book itself really or the hype around the painful. hype and it starts getting meta starts getting meta yeah mm-hmm. it's really painful and like there's an interview you can listen to wallace uh, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes i think it's on the to to the best of our knowledge when the book came out and it's this guy interviewing him who has clearly not read the book and, <laughs> and he just knows that it's a long book and so every question is just like so you turned in this really long book. Did you make cuts to it? You know, or, you know, how did they decide to publish such a long book? And it's like, uh-huh. it's just excruciating to listen to oh, yeah. over and over. Like this guy trying to make a good interview out of something he hasn't read. And yeah, that, that would be a challenge. I think 
it's, to uh, do. It's, <laughs> it's really painful. It's in this um, audio collection that Little Brown just came out with a few years mm-hmm. ago called In His Own Words, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's, okay. uh, it's Maybe it's an audio download, but it's also a set of CDs, and it has mm-hmm. some interviews in it. And uh, like I say, one of the ones around the time Infinite just came out, it's just about how damn long the book is. <laughs> and Wallace makes the point it wasn't even the longest book published that year like hmm. Random House published another book uh, by Vikram Seth I think called Suitable Boy that was like oh, yeah. 300 pages longer than Infinite Jest hmm. so he was sort of like why don't you have Vikram Seth on here talking about how long sure yeah <laughs> yeah like, that would I'm be not better even, <laughs> not even the champion of that yeah um, so I mean that I, it's an interesting time of, of hmm. you know how long ago this book really came out coming up on yeah uh you know i guess the next anniversary for it would be 30 years. 25 30, no, 25 yeah. 25 yeah. in 2021 mm-hmm. yep so pretty soon yeah hmm. all right so, i need to um, shut up and take a breath now i'm sorry <laughs> okay so back to the first letter we started talking about <laughs> this episode <laughs> So last episode, you mentioned the three sort of phases in the letters of Wallace and the first one being Wallace, the apprentice. Right. Um, And so we get a moment of that in this September 1995 letter where he asks Don about his writing routine, about kinds of difficulties that he has with procrastination, self-discipline, how he overcomes them. So, yeah, you kind of see that like young writer asking the, you know, the old wise fish about how do you do this and keep your sanity um, and be productive. Then there's a, a funny part where he talks about his very first interview with David Straightfield from the post. Yeah. And he was telling him all this really personal stuff and ghastly personal indiscretions. And David's like, look, man, you can't say any of that stuff to <laughs> interviewers. Like, and luckily the guy was nice enough not to print any of them. And he also, during the interview, there was like, personal letters from DeLillo tacked to Wallace's wall and he told him to take those down for future interviews when other reporters come over. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And so like uh, this very naive young Wallace, um, it's fun. Yeah, and you know, that reminds me that that interview is amazing and um, I think it was in GQ. Is that right? It's in GQ. Or Esquire. Uh, it says he was from the Post. Uh, Washington Post. So I don't know where it actually uh, yeah, well, just there's, the post there's a photo of Wallace in it that's really bizarre too, where Wallace is wearing like hmm. almost like junko jeans and then like a tank top, like it's crazy looking, <laughs> um, and it's like really weird lighting and uh, it especially reproduced as Xerox, like black and white. It looks bizarre. Oh yeah, and well we'll I, make that the image for this episode. Totally, then. totally. In that interview too, he talks about uh, trying to become a Catholic. And oh yeah, that, it is that interview with Straightfield, I got to say was not widely known. I mean, this was my like, yeah, I don't think I've read that one. This was my hobby back in the day. Like before, mm-hmm. before I had other, oh, it's hobbies. not anymore. Matt. Before I had other, hobbies. <laughs> well now, like I say with the internet, everything's online, but there was a period yeah. and you know, some of my fellow listeners here will remember this period where uh, <laughs> to track down Wallace ephemera like this, you actually yeah. had to go, to a library and right. get microfilm or get uh, yeah. something out Microfiche. of the archives and get it printed and then Xerox it and maybe mm. scan it or maybe just mail it around to a bunch of friends. 
and yeah. uh, it's kind of like the Dylan basement tapes. Like we had all of this stuff that, right. was not, <laughs> that was not published, and a lot of it is still never been published, you know, or yeah. uh, right. is available online, but of like scans of PDFs that we made way back then. But mm-hmm. that was an interview. I honestly I don't remember tracking down until uh, DT Max and I went looking for it in oh yeah 2010 2011 for maybe. the biography yeah and uh, cool eventually tracked it down. I was like wow if I had known this back then that you know that he was um, actively trying to convert to Catholicism like it would have mm-hmm. it would have been an, a fact you know on his biography that was not there really. It was out there in the public, yeah, the, but he, yeah, and there's some brief mention of that in the biography too, right? That he was going through like catechism or whatever, sure, and then just sure, couldn't but, pull the trigger ultimately. Well, I think they, they rejected stuff. him. They rejected him because <laughs> he had too much <laughs> doubt. I mean, he had too much doubt. But they, um, but th- that was out in the apparently in the Washington Post in 1996, and oh yeah, uh, hmm. thanks to David Strakefield, who is you know, still around, still writing, still doing great stuff. Um, yeah. Hmm. And so it'd be great. Maybe we should follow up with David Straightfield and get his opinion about that, that interview. Yeah. Good call. Let's do it. There's uh, another great moment in this letter where Wallace calls DeLillo a recluse because he hasn't been on David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that actually bothers me that when, when people still to this day, sometimes refer to DeLillo as a recluse, and it's like yeah. he is not. He makes some appearances, right? At yeah, all. and like yeah, he's not pinching. That's for sure. Uh, no, right? like not even close. I mean, like he does readings. Uh, we know people who have seen him at readings, including me, uh, and like including. Him. I would say half the people I know have signed books from him, at least in the U.S. You know, like, half the people you know. Yeah, I'm gonna call bullshit. On I, that. I only know two people though. So. <laughs> right. Well, let's well, say uh, among people who are active in the David Foster Wallace Society, a lot of them <laughs> have signed Delilah books. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he makes frequent appearances at signings and festivals. and Yeah. Readings. Like you've seen him at Texas Book Festival yeah. what, a couple years ago. Yeah. When was he there? Uh, yeah. 2015, 2016. Um, yeah. But so he's around. Yeah. And I mean, even he, in his 80s, he's doing totally press stuff. Yeah. That's not a recluse. Yeah, and it was he was not that way back then. He's always been willing to do book promotion stuff, and honestly, yeah. I think it would have helped his reputation a little bit to stay home from some of those events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Get the aura of mystique. Yeah, be a is... little more reclusive, Don DeLillo. Sure. I mean, look what it's done for Thomas Pynchon. You get on The Simpsons that way, you know, with I, the paper bag on your head. Uh, G, I mean, J.D. Salinger to some extent too, but sure, right? Yeah. Um, in this letter, Wallace says that he's, he was talking about a publicity party and he says, it's the only one I've ever been to. And if God's in his heaven, it will be my last. I think that was all bullshit too, by the way. I think that <laughs> he had been to many literary parties and like part of, uh-huh. him, um, you know, part of it is an act that you put on, like you have to hate this sure. to be the, the sensitive artist. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a complicated dude. And I guarantee fucking tell you, he went to yeah. other literary parties. Like there's pictures <laughs> of him at other parties and yeah. not that he necessarily loved it, but that's an exaggeration yeah. is all I'm saying. That's, sure. that's some hyperbole. Yeah. yeah. And we know that, that our man is prone to that, uh, on more than one occasion for sure. Easily. Yeah. Uh, all right. October, 1995, another letter. Little Brown sends a manuscript of Infinite Jest for Don to blurb. 
Wallace effusively implores him only to do so if he has time slash will. And he, and he says, quote, if little Brown's peach put blurb pressure on you or something, I implore you to ignore it. Um, so again, like Wallace is falling over himself to, you know, try and act cool to DeLillo but <laughs> to I, some extent. But see, I also think here he is uh, feeling like he's become friends with DeLillo and DeLillo mm-hmm. is not, you know, someone that he's just trying to pump for information and blurbs. And right. So he, I think wants to make it apparent that he's, he's in it for the long haul of like friendship and camaraderie and like mm-hmm. collegiality yeah. rather than just like, I want to mm-hmm. use you like an industry person. I think yeah, there's totally. a lot of that, like posturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the letter where we see, the quote that we said last time that the novel is a fucking killer. I try to give it every respect. Yeah. Which was a quote by DeLillo in the previous letter. Um, in this letter, Wallace talks about broom of the system that he was showing off that he was a really good fiction writer, that he was approval hungry. And he says that infinite jest is much less ego hobbled and quote in my tummy. I know that it's better fiction (laughs) than broom. Do you think that's true that Infinite Jest is less ego hobbled than Broom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of showing off in Broom that's just not there in Infinite Jest and you know he talks a lot about what is the the art's heart's purpose and I think right. that his purpose is uh you know he's trying to say something bigger than like look how smart I am and <laughs> sure. you know, look yeah. how funny that, I am. That that's certainly apparent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I I think that he actually feels a sense of urgency with infinite jest that he doesn't feel with um with the system to, to communicate yeah, something important totally i think that's very clear i think that there's some stuff about infinite jest that is that is show-offy but maybe in a different way um like there's a lot less critical theory and continental philosophy stuff in your face in infinite jest i think there's there's less metafictional stuff probably going on than broom so in that sense, oh, I think for that's sure. True. But I mean, there's a lot of the yeah. stuff about sobriety is really about like him being mm-hmm. humbled and brought yeah. low. It's like, oh, you go, from, you go from being in a Harvard PhD program to, you know, mopping the floors of some yeah. drunk guys puke every day. Um, yeah. Then, you know, there's, I think that his, his purpose is coming from that. There's probably always a mm-hmm. bit of, of show offedness in his work. Sure. Um, yeah. But like not in service of something egotistical, like some in service right. of him actually trying to make a connection with other people who he mm-hmm. thinks are think like him. Yeah. And I think yeah. he's probably right. I, I don't love broom. I know a lot of people like still love that book and like, mm-hmm. it's just all right for me, dog. is that a randy uh what's the guy from the randy jackson randy jackson i don't love that book and like do i want to reread it not really it's like yeah i like it i think it's fun i haven't read it for over a decade i think i probably read it in like 2008 or 9 um i think there are some moments that i think are some of wallace's funniest writing for sure um but yeah overall it doesn't gel for me in the same way that 
the Pale King or Infinite Jest do. Oh, for, for sure. sure. And I mean, that's what you want yeah. out of a writer is for them to mature, especially one who's mm-hmm. going from yeah. 22 to 33. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. he's you know, 33. He, I think he is uh, a little more pragmatic about what his cuts are to, like the stuff that he yeah. cut out of Infinite yeah. Jest is like... Totally. When you're 22, it's really hard, I think, to take notes from someone else unless they're yeah. Don fucking DeLillo, right? <laughs> sure. And I think that's what he wants is like he's going to Don DeLillo to be like, hey, give me give me advice. But the, the relationship changes at some point and yeah. know, DeLillo's like, I'm not going to give you advice. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you know, as successful as I am now in some ways. Um, There's a great moment in this letter where he, they're talking about Mark Lehner and I think Wallace is kind of comparing his, his style in broom to Mark Lehner whose book, my cousin, my gastroenterologist Wallace mentioned several times, I think in interviews, he calls Lehner the Prince of darkness here to Don DeLillo. <laughs> yeah. And see, I think due to how self aggrandizing his writing is. And, and see, I actually, I think that book is hilarious. It is funny. I read it just only because Wallace talked about it in interviews. And yeah, I think Wallace said that it's like an MTV like music video. Like it's, it's purely entertaining and it's funny, but there's no thematic substance or humanity to it, I think is his, his point. So in that sense, he sees his, him as the Prince of darkness. Uh, it's very juvenile. And, <laughs> sure. And I think a lot of body humor. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think Mark Lehner is the Prince of Darkness, but I do think <laughs> uh, those books serve a purpose. Like they're just way more absurdly funny uh, on their yeah. face. Like that's the only purpose. Like they're not trying to be great literature. Um, mm-hmm. I did read Mark Lehner's last book, which was really atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And I would not. You know, he, he sort of took a break and did some like kind of straight writing that's not in that style uh, mm-hmm. and then came back to this style, uh, I think, mm-hmm. in about 2014, 2015. Um, and it just really didn't work. It's called Gone mm-hmm. with the Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it, I take that back. He did Sugar Frosted Nutsack in 2012. <laughs> oh. Speaking of juvenile, yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. But the 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 Gone with the Mind book, you know, the main character is called Mark Laner, and he's doing a reading at a, I think, at a Cinnabon, in a mall. Okay. Uh huh. Waiting for his <laughs> mom fun. to show up. Like it's it's really bad. Um, hmm. That sounds very depressing. But I mean, if Wallace was at all worried about being compared with Mark Laner, like it was not necessary to worry about that right yeah yeah right (laughs) well the next letter in the series is a response from don delillo to wallace and there's i think i think there's two of these in the file at ransom that's meant for wallace i don't know if they just got mixed in or what but um delillo says to him that your first book was more fun but that doesn't mean you've left pleasure behind forever in Wallace's previous letter, the one we were just talking about, he complains to DeLillo of funlessness in his writing. Um, I assume after he's finished writing Infinite Jest that he's never been more professionally flummoxed, he says. So DeLillo's kind of like trying to lift him up here, it seems like. He tells him that Mao 2 was not fun at all, 
it was, quote, a lot of grim digging, forced labor all the way, and that he had to fight for every sentence. Um, he talks, too, about white noise being, even though it's tinged with comedy, that there was, like, a depressing mood in the room while he was writing it for the year. Um, and then he says, I don't see anything in the early pages of the new novel that would lead me to believe that you're dying of funlessness, <laughs> which he's speaking about, you know, the galley of infinite jest that he has there. Yeah. I, you know, I find this really fascinating because this is very yeah. much, um, inside baseball between writers. Right. And that mm -hmm. they don't want their work to become just work. Right. It's got to be entertaining and fun for them to do. Um, and you know, you hear this all the time with people who make their hobby, their job. It's like, well, do, yeah. <laughs> do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's like, or you will grow to hate your hobby because it becomes your job. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. it's like, well, you used to love to paint, but now that you need to do it to make money and you're in your studio every day, there's a lot of pressure on you. Sure. Um, and becoming a professional writer and making that work every day. I mean, I find writing even a very short thing to be extremely difficult and mm -hmm. uh, sort of soul crushing almost. And yeah. Like, I feel that way about academic writing. Like if I'm not in a specific program where they're awarding me marks and like late penalties, I'm just probably never going to write an academic thing again in, in my life because I find it to be so soul destroying. Well, it's incredible, incredible amount of work. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. the toll that it takes on you mentally and spiritually um, spiritual <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm serious i think That's it good. can deplete yeah. you and yeah really fuck with your sense of identity um mm -hmm. and you know the pressure that wallace has is that he's successful from day one so there's pressure on him yeah every bit of his professional life he feels this sort of pressure to be better and sort of outdo mm -hmm. what he did and yeah. i think you know with infinite jest he does it but it wasn't, it was work, you know, it was a lot mm -hmm. of years and years of work. I think sure. in one interview, he says like, someone asked him like, so you spent three years on this, the same idiot guy I mentioned earlier. And, uh, <laughs> right. And Wallace was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we know for a fact that there's stuff in infinite jest that he that wrote in grad school that ended up, right. you know, in the book five, six years later. Mm hmm. Right. So that amount of time, like you go back in your head right now, what's five, six years ago, um, and you've basically accomplished just that in your professional life. Like you've yeah. just done nothing or yeah. you have nothing to show it's for It's almost it. like us with the podcast. Like it was <laughs> exactly four years ago. Yeah, it's this exactly month, like so. us with the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> just a vacuous pile of uh, rambling, you know? Um <laughs> But, you know, this this reminds me of him. So him asking DeLillo for advice, um, mm -hmm. this is something I think about is that he probably wrote to other writers that he admired who didn't write back. Hmm. And I know for yeah, I a fact that he admired a lot of other writers. Um, yeah. And I mean, I could we could name several that he names: uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Ozick, William Gass, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But Delillo writes back, and so the whole reason why we're having this to this conversation, and the whole reason why the Ransom Center spent a lot of money on these archives, is like these two guys 
they wrote back to each other a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, do you happen to know how much they bought these for? Is that public information? Uh, I think it is public information. I'm not sure about the DeLillo archives because it was bought before the Wallace ones, before I was paying attention to this. Mm. Um, but I think that you can dig up the the records for the Wallace archive, and I think that they spent 250000 on it, hmm. uh, which, is a, I, that's which is a bargain. It might be more than that, might be double that, but it's yeah. not too much more than that. Um, I mean, they spent a million dollars on Gabriel Garcia Marquez. They spent maybe mm. two million. They spent a million dollars on J.M. Cutsey. Um, mm. They just bought Rachel Cusk's archive. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, I think they spent a million dollars on Norman Mailer. Hmm. So they spent less than that on Wallace. You know, he was only 46. Sure. Yeah. Uh, published less than any of those guys. Right. Um, but you know, the value of it has increased tenfold because mm-hmm. it's yep. their most requested archive at the ransom center for, you know, 10 years running now, nine years running. Yeah. Um, that's pretty wild. So the value of it is, you know, you could put that kind of a number on it, but really part of the value mm-hmm. is, is inherent in just these two guys having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm going, where I'm going with this is like, I think, um, how to say this delicately there's no real delicate way to say it i think that like delillo is a good writer is he the greatest writer of all time no <laughs> and like we think of him is in Wallace? these great terms well maybe uh i mean <laughs> i think i mean well i'll put it this way i think infinite jest is better than anything delillo ever wrote and i think that it will be taught and read i would and- agree with that but I, th- I think Underworld is not far behind. It's not taught near as much. The, the readership. Yeah, I think is White not... Noise is probably taught more than Infinite Jest, though. Probably, but, but I also I don't think... know if that's the litmus test for great. I don't literature. think it's a great. I don't think it's a great book. You know, I mean, I think White Noise is is good, but I don't think it's it's great literature. Sorry, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I will fight you, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you can fight me verbally. Uh, I mean, I think the fact that yeah, here from New Zealand, th- that fight's going to be a, a a long, long stretched arms. Jump through the Skype and punch me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll punch you in June, Matt. Shot in the arm. Um, I mean, the, the fact that we do a podcast about Wallace probably is evidence that we think he's, the, you know, obviously our favorite writer. I would not do a podcast about any other writer. Um, Here's where I'm so going DeLillo. with it. Let, let me let me take this to its logical conclusion is that okay. there were people writing who Wallace admired just as much, who I think should be read just as much as Don DeLillo. Uh, mm-hmm. And I could name some names of them who I think were great writers around the same time. And maybe Wallace mm-hmm. would not agree with this, but other people might who you know, are more, I would say, in the postmodern experimentalist vein that Wallace wanted to be. And mm-hmm. I don't think Don DeLillo is in the top ranks of those people. Uh, and I would put John Barth in there and that the whole like Wallace thing trying to kill John Barth with Westward. Mm-hmm. I don't right. think so. I don't think that was success. And I'll Patriarch tell you. Patriarch for his parasite. No, I think yeah. that like Westward uh, is not a great piece either. And especially because it has such a bad agenda, like whatever the art's heart purpose is, right? 
We said that's right. good with Infinite Jest, maybe less yeah. so with Broom. Really bad with Westward. Westward. <laughs> it's like the sure. heart's purpose is like really academic and off track. And honestly, I don't think Westward is as good as anything that John Barth wrote. And mm-hmm. Barth, DeLillo, all of these guys have mixed bag of books. A lot of Barth. Uh, sure. I would say yeah. a lot of DeLillo books I would not recommend. Like, yeah. Just out. There's quite a lot of Delilah's catalog that I have. Pretty much everything like, since m- most of his early me. stuff. <laughs> like uh. pretty much everything in the past like 25 years. Like it's okay. Pr- 20 years of like misses, right? And it's like yes, uh, we we all like Mouchu, you okay. all like Libra, Underworld, yeah. White Noise. You know, and then yeah, it's funny. Like, I've read everything since White Noise to present, and only one book before White Noise, which was Great Jones Street. So I haven't read like Enzo and Americana. Oh, you got you got to uh, read Ratner Star. You gotta There's read quite a few I haven't read that I still intend to get to the names. Um, yeah, there is some misses for sure in the last 20 years. I thought Zero K was pretty strong though. I would rank that <sighs> relatively right high. Me, man, it was just all right. Yeah, and like, yeah. I'm not saying Wallace is perfect either. I just said I didn't think Westwood sure. was great. I didn't think Broom was great. Um, I think a lot in Oblivion is great. I think the Pale King mm-hmm. is great. Um, yeah. even though he didn't get to publish it the way he wants in his lifetime. All I'm sure. saying, trying to say is like Don DeLillo, I don't want anyone to get the impression that I think that he is like God, you know? Right. I think that well, what if I told you that there's someone on the Wallace society, uh, board who thinks that underworld is a better novel than infinite jest. I'd say they're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> okay. I'm going to follow up with that person and, and Let them know you said that. You should. I I agree, I agree with you though. I think they're wrong too. Uh, I I think that um, <laughs> if Wallace had had a lengthy con- um, correspondence with Cormac McCarthy, um, with William Gass, or mm-hmm. with you know some of these other people of a different generation who I also admire, Guy Davenport, yeah. Hugh Kenner, all of those guys, John Hawks, Gilbert Sorrentino. You know, we would maybe look at them in a different light or you would say, oh, I haven't read, you know, the lime twig or I haven't read, you know, Tidewater Tales. And it's like mm-hmm. Marshall Boswell, when we had him on the show. Yeah. He was saying kind of that, like, more people need to go read Tidewater Tales. And yeah, he was uh, pretty keen. I think that there's a skewed thing that these archives can create like where we study these yeah. letters like holy relics and kind of they are. But if it had been Wallace and Cormac McCarthy talking about Satri and outer dark and you know, the cities of the plane, like we would be having a different kind of conversation just because that dude wrote back. Mm. And I, I think a lot of this whole conversation just hinges on the fact that like, Maybe Don DeLillo was a little bit lonely and bored and was just like, hey, this guy wrote me. <laughs> like, I'm going to write him back. Like, he didn't mean him. So you're he didn't saying that Cormac McCarthy is a greater than Don DeLillo. Maybe a little more well-adjusted up top. I don't know. I'm just making that up. <laughs> I I would rank DeLillo much higher than McCarthy I, I, for my know, own personal literary taste. But I also think McCarthy's great. So I think McCarthy <laughs> has fewer misses than DeLillo. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's reasonable. I have read way less McCarthy than DeLillo, so I oh, need to. Oh God, expand you're on missing that, out. I'll go ahead. And, <laughs> you know, I'll go ahead and rank my like top five McCarthy, and like I absolutely love the Border Trilogy. 
right. all the pretty horses crossing yeah. cities of the plain if you haven't read the crossing that actually might be my favorite one although i could okay. go and reread uh, all the pretty horses hmm. every year i absolutely love that yeah. book but okay. i like the crossing even better uh, especially the first half with the wolf um hmm. blood meridian wallace were raves about it i absolutely love that book yeah yeah that's um, good and then his you know the stuff that he's published lately the road and the uh, no country for old men i mean that that stuff yeah. is if nothing else, way more entertaining than anything the Lilo's published in 20 years. And I 20 mean, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I see what you mean. That's I think the road's argument. great. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I just think we'd have a different conversation if that guy wrote back. Sure. All right. And cool. this is part of well, me. Also, speaking like, of which <laughs> I'm getting more curmudgeonly as we go on, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. As you get later into the into the Austin evening, yep, uh, <laughs> closer to bedtime. <laughs> um, okay, so we've we've done what two letters today so far? We're at forty six minutes. Yeah, you get the gist. Should we, should we <laughs> keep cruising? <laughs> yeah. So November fourteenth, we get a new letter. No year on this one. I assume that it's ninety six, probably. He writes to Delillo to congratulate him on Underworld. And he says, quote, even out here where grapes do not grow, I have heard that you finished and that congratulations are in order. And these are hereby tendered along with expressions of keen anticipation. That's it. That's the only thing we have in that letter. Uh, then we have June 25, I assume maybe 97. Let me, uh, let me go back about... a little bit. And so 95, sure. late 95, December 95, uh, January of 96, February 96, somewhere in there is also whenever Wallace goes to the set of Lost Highway. Okay. So that's going to come up shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, Wallace in 96 read Underworld, offered extremely detailed comments, and that mm -hmm. made a huge impression on Don DeLillo. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in those phases we're talking about, if you go in from apprentice to sort of genius phase, mm -hmm. Wallace mm -hmm. is corresponding a lot with his contemporaries. And I think this is the point where Don DeLillo reciprocates and views him as a contemporary of a, a fellow, you know, master and a colleague. It's like, yeah. this guy's a fucking genius. Yeah. Um, whereas yeah, before. We're going to see some of that shortly here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Keep going. <laughs> all right um so june 25th letter wallace talks about fan letters what an year 18 page outpouring uh this one doesn't have a year but i'm gonna assume that it's 96 or 97 okay probably 96 i've got there's a few without a year and then the next one of the year is november 96 so probably this is 96 as well june 96 March 96, September. Yeah. Gotcha. Anyways. Um, that he got an 18 page fan letter that ended with, don't worry, I won't try and come find you. <laughs> it was not me. I never wrote him a fan letter. You're sure that wasn't you, Matt? I sort of wish that I had wrote him a fan letter to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. You would have got a response. Yeah. Um, Wallace in this letter complains. There's no, there are no good theaters or places to watch art films. And I think he's talking about, would this be normal? I think yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he does say that he watched Jim Jarmusch's film dead man though, recently. 
And then he talks about Lost Highway here too and says that it turned out to be ghastly, Lynch at his worst, and the Lynch piece was even cringier. <laughs> See, I so disagree with that. Yeah, on the piece or on Lost Highway or both? Both. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't think Lost Highway is ghastly. Like, I thought it was <laughs> it was super interesting. Wallace has some, has some hot takes on film in these letters, actually. Between yeah, him and his it, comments on P.T. Anderson. I, I really shortly. disagree with him on that, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, he does recommend Twin Peaks, though, in this letter to Don DeLillo. Yeah, and I mean... Which you can't de- disagree with. Okay I'm for sure. that, but I mean, there's a type of Twin Peaks person, I think, who also like uh, appreciates Firewalk With Me as much sure. or more than the first series. And like, yeah. I get the impression Wallace is recommending the TV show, the first TV show, and not Fire, yeah, yeah. Fire Walk With Me. Yeah, that's a different beast for sure. Um, yeah, specifically Twin Peaks here. He also praises the cover of Underworld and says that it's going to get massive attention. He's really effusive in these letters coming up about Underworld. Kind, kind of ass which, kissing. Kind of ass kissing. Kind of, yeah. But I mean, wouldn't you, if you were writing to to one or one of these guys, specifically Wallace, maybe a little bit. I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty curmudgeonly, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three criticisms and one point of praise, Wallace. Here they are. Um. There's another undated letter after this in which he calls Underworld Dawn's most moving book, and he says that parts of the epilogue made him cry. And I would have to agree that the epilogue to Underworld is some of DeLillo's best writing as well. I I would agree with that. I I mean, and I think the the Pafco at the Wall stuff, too, at the beginning is is pretty great. So great. Yeah. Who is it? Um, uh, The director of the FBI, Jagger Hoover. Frank Sinatra and I think Jackie Gleason. Yeah, that's Jackie. I think that's it. They're at the uh, at the baseball game yeah. with the shot heard around the world, and the pages of Bruegel's Triumph of Death are falling on them. <laughs> oh man, that's some good stuff. Yeah, and Wallace in one of the those letters in '96, maybe '97, says that his dad has this memory of the shot heard around the world um, in 1951. Mm-hmm. And he kind of shares that with Delillo and Delillo, I tell really enjoyed that. Um, hmm. But yeah, the, the epilogue, I mean, that's like, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't want to get in too much into underworld. Let's move on. Sure. Okay. <laughs> then we have an undated Christmas card. It's a uh, postcard featuring the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus. And it says, may love and peace and joy abide. Amen. And that's it. Um, there's actually quite a few like Catholic specific, um, greeting cards that Wallace sends to Delillo. Very sincere. And like, um, yeah, I don't know where he got those Christmas cards. They're terrible. Honestly, he sent some <laughs> like to, the, to the Catholic supply store. Or yeah. Something. He sent some to David yeah. Markson as well. And they're just very bad. Oh yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, March 16th. No year. I think it's yeah. 96 probably still here. Um, he says that he, he's talking about the book tour. Maybe in that case, what month did Infinite Jest come out? In February 96. February, okay, so this would be 96 then. He says that the nadir of the book tour was a woman screaming at him about how his catalog of essays was deeply insensitive to damaged and deformed infants. <laughs> wow. 
um, which there's a lot of in, in Infinite Jest, so that's fair, I guess. Uh, he tried to be nice to reporters who hadn't read the book, but were only reporting on the hype and the hype around the hype, mm-hmm. and that it seemed like the book itself had become like the most photographed barn in America, which of course is a big scene and white noise. Uh, I can imagine that would have been pretty exhausting to have that kind of interview question come up over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and just a whole yeah. interview structured around it, it's really excruciating yep. to listen to. If you haven't done it before, go and listen to mm-hmm. uh, someone who hasn't read the book trying to ask <laughs> Foster Wallace about the hype around the book. I yeah, yeah. It's really bad. Yeah, that's awful. Uh, then we have September 7th, uh, no year, but we're assuming 96 here. He uh, very cringily asks Don to be a Guggenheim reference again. He says that Franzen and Eugenides got one, and John thinks that Wallace has a good chance this time, since those two got it. Um, yeah, the, and there's a reference to this in the um, Death is Not the End story in Brief Interviews, where he's talking about the mm-hmm. poet and the poet's poet, Nobel Prize winner guy. Mm-hmm. And he puts a footnote saying, yet never the recipient of a John D. and Catherine <laughs> MacArthur, no, not MacArthur, Solomon, John Solomon Guggenheim Foundation grant despite right. hiring a graduate student to fill out the tedious forms in triplicate. Um, and you can tell, you know, Wallace that's autobiographical and that he directly. Never, yeah. He never got a Guggenheim, even though he applied for it multiple times and you have right. to go around asking like, you know, Don DeLillo to write a letter of reference letters. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it is surprising to me that Franz and, and Eugenides got, Guggenheim's but not Wallace that seems really seems like backwards political and unjust almost. to yeah. me yeah uh, November 96 we have a greetings from Texas postcard and a lot of these postcards are quite funny and like pedestrian in what they um, what they depict I mean is there any other kind of postcard than one that is pedestrian I guess but uh, it's funny to see like you know high literary authors you know, stooping to that level of banality. I like it. I think he was very aware of that. Totally, yeah. His, his normal guyness, his average dude mm-hmm. persona stuff. Yeah. And this one he references his girlfriend. I would assume this is Mary Carr in November 96. No, um, no. This is Kimberly different Harris. Different one. Kimberly Harris. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that checks out. He's already moved. Or it could be Juliana. No, I think it's Kimberly Harris because he's... Yeah, that makes sense because if he's just moved to normal... Yeah. Right. Because isn't there stuff about um, Victoria Harris saying that she like was basically like pitching her daughter to Dave at his job interview? Yeah. Like, oh, by the way, we have, the, yeah. we have this beautiful daughter. You should date her. And then they did. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, there's a reference to Nan Graham, the first one in this in this postcard. And Nan is going to come up a lot afterwards. That's DeLillo's editor and... Incidentally, she married Wallace's best friend in the whole world, Mark Costello. Yep. Uh, he's pumped his girlfriend for gossip, he says, and he's learned that Pafco at the Wall is part of something larger. Um, says he's sorry he, it won't see print as a novella. Guess the publishers changed their mind, which is funny because that later did get published as a novella, mm-hmm. Pafco at the Wall, mm-hmm. which is the opening like 70 pages of Underworld. So if you have Underworld, you don't really need to own Pafco at the wall, unless you're a completionist, <laughs> book collector-wise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says in this that Pafco is his favorite work since the Ruby sections of Libra. That's cool. 
And here he says at the end, happy holidays of whatever sort are ethnically opposite. Which I thought was a very funny <laughs> way to phrase Merry Christmas. It's like, does he not know Delillo is like Italian Catholic? Catholic, yeah, totally. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, January 1997, our next letter. Uh, he has a really weird reference here about um, Oppenheim who was the uh, J. Robert Oppenheim who designed the atomic bomb. He's convinced that his comment, you know, the Shiva comment about like, behold, I'm the destroyer of worlds mm-hmm. at the first test blast uh, because he saw his own face over the desert, his own horrific bust. I don't remember what exactly that's like in reference to or apropos of, but it struck me as an interesting moment. It's got to be talking about underworld there, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because nuclear bombs play a pretty big role there. Yeah, I would assume he's talking about underworld, but yeah, yeah. Most of these letters in this time period do talk about underworld for the most part. Um, he says here that Nan gave Wallace a seven point nine kilogram underworld manuscript, <laughs> which Wallace then scanned for typos, which in fourteen hundred and fourteen pages found maybe four confirmeds. And then he says, whoever typed this is not a human being. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's great. Almost 1,500 pages, four confirmed. I love that. Sounds like a military terminology, <laughs> like kill confirmed, you know. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Call of Duty this week, uh, so you know that's on my brain. Um, he says here to Don that it's his best work ever so far and seems like a synthesis of all the things that Don has written before it that it reads like jazz that's nice it's a good compliment i think yeah because delillo loves jazz yeah he also says here that nick shea is his most affecting character ever which is funny because in the last week you and me and some other uh Mm -hmm. wallace friends were texting about the fuck boys of don delillo's (laughs) literature (laughs) and that I, I think I said that like the character from Cosmopolis is the ultimate uh, iteration of that. And then Mike Miley said, Nick Shea is also a fuckboy. And I was like, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of scholarship out there on, on underworld. Again, we keep coming back to it just for this time period, but the, yeah. the whole like uh, waste management, you know, Wallace mm-hmm. is interested in that angle as yeah. well. Some of it, yeah. I think they're getting from, from pension who writes about mm-hmm. right by waste. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do agree that that part with Nick and Marion, um, if you haven't read the book, I mean, this probably makes no sense. So uh, <laughs> sure. where, where like we our at, entire like, podcast. Yeah. Nine, <laughs> now we're at February 97. Uh, this is another Dawn to Dave <laughs> response. They get take heart listener and Matt my co-host the letters get uh less compressed time-wise after sort of this period this is seems to be the most prolific period around infinite jest and underworld gotcha um so don says here to dave that he doubts he'll get many responses to underworld as nuanced as dave's which were quote so deep reaching and so well tuned to the ticks and tremors of the book uh so that's nice that wallace seemed to be like one of Don's most attentive readers, you know, before Underworld was published. Yeah, because I think a lot that's of cool. a lot of these writers they get feedback that's like, 
you know, something massive like this and, and some the feedback will be like, Oh, it was great. I loved it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, cool. I'm glad I just spent like five years writing. You're like, that well, what part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah. made a big impression on on Delillo, I think. Yeah, it's, it really seems like there's a, like a level and depth of appreciation there for the way that the kind of reader that Wallace was. Um, there's a great line here where Don says, "I do hear a kind of music when I write, but I also see words across a sentence sort of matching up and mating." See, this is ultra pretentious to me. Like, come on, <laughs> come on! It's so Delillo esque, though. <sighs> And I mean, it can't be anything else because it's Don DeLille, but I just, it's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's just so easy to parody that style then. Like, yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah. The writing as music, yada, yada, yeah. That's, that's fair criticism, I think. It's great. But again, it's, this is the one book that he, you know, structures this way with this lengthy book, like. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the other stuff he does after this, right? The next book after this is like 90 pages, right? Body Artist. Body Artist is next. Yeah, I think and so. Cosmopolis, which some people love. I hated that book. Fallen yeah, it's Man. not my favorite. Fallen I think it's got Man, some... That was terrible. Yeah, not super strong. Point yeah. Omega was good, but again, it was like 90 pages. Right, yeah. Zero K, I already issued my verdict on that one. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, January 30th, uh, there's no date for the year, but I think it's 98 given where it falls in the letters. Uh, Wallace says to to Don here that he saw Underworld in a Las Vegas airport while there to cover the adult video Oscars, which he says was a proposal which sounded neat when I accepted, but which turned out to be like spending three days in Bosch's hell panel. <laughs> Hermania's Bosch, famous, uh, renaissance painter who depicts hell a lot in his work not unlike Bruegel which is fun uh, yeah I should have said the triumph of death right yeah right that would have been a more uh, brown nosing DeLillo reference yeah. I guess <laughs> um, he references Robert McLaughlin in this letter who is a professor across the hall from him at ISU who's been really involved at the conference over the last few years yep. Yep. he calls him one of the nicest human beings I've ever seen up close <laughs> yeah, I really hope Bob which I think is true that. I think yeah, I me too. I've got to see that. Yeah. Um, I don't know Bob very well, but from everything I've seen of him at the conferences, I, that checks out really well to me. Totally. Yeah. Uh, then we have a short note from May 98. He talks about, uh, in past tense, it was a treat to have dinner with Don and Franzen. Quote, it was also a treat to see Franzen more docile and cowed than I've ever seen him. I wish I had that effect on him. <laughs> See, I'm pretty sure we discussed this last time. I think we did. Yeah. Film. Yeah. That's good. That's a nice moment. Um, October 20th. Uh, we're assuming 98. There's no year. Uh, he talks about brief interviews here. He, he says that it's a very dark and sad book. Also that men's rooms are places of mortal drama. In my opinion, if I ever wrote a play, it'd be set in a men's room. Well, and he does put that that part in brief interviews and in Infinite Jest that's, you know, partly there, um, set in a men's room, and it's just like it's just all yeah. right for me. No, I I don't get whatever his fascination is there, like with it. Oh man, the men's room brief interviews chapter is so funny to me. You know, this I is just... this is something that I, just makes me 
maybe someone else has had this experience is that uh-huh. there's a thing in one of Ben Lerner's novels. Uh-huh. I think it's maybe in 1004. It could uh-huh. be in the, the leaving the Tocha station where he talks about men's rooms. And like that bit to me is way better and memorable than okay. whatever the hell Wallace was interested in. Like a real, <laughs> Wallace was interested in like a really antiquated men's room thing where there was like, you know, an attendant and like, yeah, yeah totally like so perfect or like colognes and stuff. I've been in maybe like two or three restaurants, like bathrooms like that in my life. Like yeah, like totally. That. Yeah. Maybe less. Yeah. So whatever he is into, I didn't get uh-huh. it. I don't so, think that's from 1004. Cause I feel like I would maybe remember that. And that's the only learner. I've read so far. It must be from a Tocha station. Yeah, it must I, be. Yeah. It's definitely not in Topeka school, which we'll have to talk about at our year end wrap up thing. Yeah. I haven't read that yet, but I'm seeing a lot of buzz and I would be interested to check it out soon. Well, I have read it. So we'll talk about it later. And... Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, November 90 or 98. Uh, he sees that Don got a national book award nomination and that quote, you're going to win for underworld. Incidentally, Don DeLillo did not win. He did Cold not Mountain win. By Charles Frazier won. <laughs> uh, but Wallace did say that his only competition would be Cynthia Ozick. Um, and that quote, though I yield to no U.S. Gentile in my admiration for her. Speaking of Ozick, <laughs> I guess she's Jewish. Is that what he means? That's correct. It's a really clumsy way of putting it. I mean, sure. I, again, I really like Cynthia Ozick. Um, I haven't read anything by her. But I should. Wallace talks about her a lot. I don't know that she is, you know, as widely regarded as Wallace would like for her Mm -hmm. to have been. Yeah, I get that impression. Um, And I think uh, she often gets thrown out like, oh, do you like women writers? And like he uses Mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. She's still still around. I don't think she's published anything in a while. But um, she did publish some essays. I can't remember. But... Mm -hmm. um, I mean, her novel, that Putter Messer Papers, that was amazing. Uh, she's got a lot of short stories and essays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see what he likes in her, and she was definitely um, as celebrated, like awards-wise, you know, like if you go off of yeah, National Book Critics Circle Award and all of that stuff, like she was, she was recognized for her greatness in a way that Wallace was not. I mean, she produced a lot. She wrote over... Mm-hmm probably 50 years yeah um that's interesting that you know we haven't really i think lucas thompson writes about cynthia ozick or maybe oh was, that would make sense yeah or maybe it was boswell but um hmm. yeah, she's a, she's an interesting choice i mean that that putter messer papers was i think it came out around the same time as underworld yeah i think that um, that is correct so maybe he was thinking is that that would be the the winner of the National Book Award, but it was mm-hmm. this like horribly popular novel with Charles Frazier. <laughs> then he says, "You will win," and Pynchon, in a gesture of staggering generosity, will leap to his feet, remove his wig and violet contacts, and lead the ovation. Yeah, yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> and that one goes out to Bo Butler, and uh, Pynchon in public didn't happen. <laughs> Sorry, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess. Uh, and then there's that funny note here, which I mentioned last time about DeLillo encrypting his letters from his home address uh, through aluminum foil and roots through a mail drop box in briny breezes, Florida. <laughs> yeah. 
That's good. Uh, July 1999, a very quick note, talks about cognitive dissonance whenever Don says he's read something Wallace has done. Wallace just can't like wrap his head around the fact that Don DeLillo would have read his work. So we, that's still like fanboyish quality to the letters here. Uh, October 1999, Wallace says, I am not working well. He's trying to quit tobacco here. He feels lugubrious after working. Nothing that he writes feels alive. Um, he says that when writing feels alive, he craves it like Edmund craves Turkish delight in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, Wallace's copy of that book by C.S. Lewis is at the archive, and I spent uh, five, ten minutes flipping through it as well when I was there, in addition to White Noise and um, one or two others. Uh, he talks about here Franzen, Franzen's mother dying, and he, Wallace went to the funeral, and that John looked like a man who'd had a lot of his soul sucked out. Uh, this moment gave me a bit of pause, Matt, I'm not going to lie, that you know Jonathan Franzen might be human after all. Of course, I mean I I'm, I feel bad for the 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 loss of his mother there. That's that's terrible. Yeah, of course we of course we say we say these things in jest, of course. But like there were moments here that I was like, oh, these are like empathic m moments, you know. Oh no! To to be clear, a lot of my uh, distaste for this man as a human <laughs> being is not in jest; is sincere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. And I. Yeah. I I think his literature is even worse than others <laughs> think it is. Um, but I, I don't, I wouldn't take any pleasure in him like being sad that his mom died. Like, that's terrible. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. I think that it's late 1999, early 2000 that uh, Magnolia comes out. The matrix comes out. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. That's, that's in the next letter. Yeah. Let's go there. Um, yeah. March, 2000. Yeah, I like that he calls the Matrix Campbell grade mythopoeia. <laughs> uh, 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 Joseph Campbell grade mythopoeia. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, and I was like, wow, that's that's pretty. That's unique. pretty apt. Yeah. But his his Here's hatred of of Magnolia Man was like, um, I sort of get it, but I disagree with it. Yeah, you know? I I totally agree with that assessment. Yeah, here's where he says that it's grad schoolish in a bad way. I'd run the opposite way for several blocks if you see it on a marquee, hideously overrated. And what's funny about this is later, long after his death, we find out that uh, for a very brief time, Wallace taught Paul Thomas Anderson. That's right, yeah. At Emerson. And I'm sure Wallace never made a mention of it. I doubt he remembered this kid that he taught him, or if he did, he never yeah, mentioned it. Yeah. Um, just it's funny because I would say like Paul Thomas Anderson became way more famous than Wallace did. Oh, for sure. And you know, uh, I mean, so a guy like, who's at the Oscars every year is way more yeah. famous than Wallace. Ever. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so you and, think he probably would have mentioned it, you know? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I also think that um, especially where we are with movies right now, you know, this Scorsese debate that's going on, um, you know, versus Marvel comics. Um, I am firmly in the camp of the people like Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese of, you know, if there's an us versus them in this, that 
that's what interests me in more in going to the movies and cinema and uh-huh. not going to see Iron Man part seven. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I I'm, think I am straight up fatigued on superhero stuff. And I think there's sure. a part of Wallace that would be like way more interested in the Marvel cinematic universe. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, <laughs> Than, than, you know, the Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I can't see Wallace really loving that movie. Just just throwing yeah. it a wild guess. No, I think um, I think you are onto something there. Based on what we know about Wallace's movie tastes. Right. Yeah. So take that with a grain of salt. He, <laughs> sure. He says that he likes David Lynch but hated Lost Highway. Yeah. Uh, hated Magnolia. I'd Loved say he liked, the, Nights, Matri- liked right? the Matrix. Yeah, know? I think that's true, yeah. Um, yeah, he says about Boogie Nights that it's like the kind of fiction that he wants to write, right? And I, I think there's a lot of similarities with with Boogie Nights and uh, the way that Infinite Jest is structured. That would be a cool paper. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could even but, bring a little Big Red Sun into that paper. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure, but Infinite Jest is obviously <laughs> better yeah. work of literature. But sure, sure. Um, yeah. It's just always um, bad when someone you admire talks bad about something you hate. You know, I'm like, I feel like you should like it, man. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like feels a betrayal, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, Wallace in this letter talks up Dave Eggers' heartbreaking work of Stagging Genius, says he likes it. I thought he said he liked it okay. He, you know, he wrote that. Oh, is that what it is? Blurb. Liked it okay? He's like, yeah. I liked it okay. Um, but he didn't know that Eggers was going to use that whole letter as the blurb on the back of the book. I think that was sort of done without his permission. (laughs) Classic, classic ruse. Uh, he says that he donates to McSweeney's that it's cutting edge lit. That's true. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that you get between these letters is that Wallace tells Don about mainstream stuff and that Don tells Dave about serious subtitled like high art movies. <laughs> yeah. This is a good arrangement, he says. You feed me on tips on serious subtitle art movies and I feed you tips on mainstream US movies. <laughs> yeah, cuz you can imagine, you know, Don DeLillo going to the film forum in Manhattan and seeing every sort of yeah, um, bizarre, you know, documentary that you cannot see in normal yeah. Illinois. Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah. Wallace talks about the McCain campaign for Rolling Stone that he did here and uh, now known as quote three months that tickled the prostate of the American century (laughs) 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 that's pretty good Um, yeah he says of it that it like confirms his intuition that fiction is what he's really supposed to do when he compares the comparative ease of nonfiction like writing um, up Simba yeah so that's interesting um then we have april 2000 letter uh wallace talks about that he really trusts peach really trusts the little brown copy editors uh and then he gets into a whole thing about like um downloaded music or like the process of like sending files instead of like actual paper manuscripts makes him feel really um like disconnected emotionally makes him feel old sort of like the way heavy metal music makes him feel. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this is interesting to me in that he uh, up Simba comes out in 2000 and little Brown did this publishing experiment to do a longer version of it. And you mm-hmm. had to have this really weird formatted 
file reader to even download it and read it. And people quickly mm-hmm. just ripped it and, you know, posted raw HTML and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, him asking Don DeLillo's thoughts on online publishing is mm-hmm. like me writing a letter <laughs> to my great grandma asking how to like, which is better, like Blu-ray or <laughs> HDT DVD. It's like you really expect Don DeLillo to have great insights on this. Yeah, um, I love it. And, you know, the, the the sort of predictions that none of them really saw the writing on the wall mm-hmm. um, of what the Internet would do to bookstores and book publishing yeah. and, you know, the rise of Amazon and um, really iPhones and like all of that. Yeah. Totally. All these predictions in Infinite Jest, which you got to think were written in like 92, 93, 94. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very, it's off in a lot of ways and writing about like cartridges rather than something like streamed through the internet. Like that was too wild. I think there is one reference where he talks about streaming, like direct streaming. Right. But mostly it's cartridges. It's cartridges. Right. And like the, the whole telephony thing, like it's very much stuck in the paradigm of its times. Yeah. And you know, when people sometimes talk about infinite jest as a work of science fiction, I tend to think like, not really you know he's yeah. looking ahead 10 15 years yeah with all 50. of the assumptions that he has in that moment you know it's not mm-hmm. assuming like okay um you know the virtual reality is like way progressed beyond where it was in 95 like yeah you have to assume that some things progress technologically in in sort of wild ways and he didn't really do that or get that mm-hmm. right um, yeah. And really, even just as a human being, like forget the fiction, like even in the, the book tour of Infinite Jest with Lipsky and with other people, he's talking about virtual reality pornography. And like right. to him, that's sort of the end point of like civilization you know, hitting the pleasure sensors <laughs> that we will have to, you know, develop new defenses against. Right, and it's like yeah. that actually turned like out not to be the menace. Him, right? Yeah, it's like that actually yeah. is not the menace. Like, I don't know of anyone who is like, well, that's really the problem today is VR porn. <laughs> it's like, no, it's actually like, it's such a niche, small thing. Um, you know, it turned out to just be the ubiquity of the internet in everyone's pockets. Right. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Him asking Don DeLillo for like publishing advice on contracts with his. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's funny. Online publishing. It's like, seriously. Yeah, it calls it like a, some sort of video game reality. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. He signs off organically yours, David Wallace. That reminds me of like, um, you know, your, or, your, your own organic daddy. Stuff yeah. like that from Infinite Jest about Joel's father. Okay, um, should we just keep pressing on? We're, all, we're getting there. Yeah, we're getting let's, there. let's do a couple more and then we'll just call it quits on this project. We're not going to do another episode, Dave. This is... <laughs> We're pretty far along in the in the past an hour for sure here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listener, we're getting to a point where uh, we want to wrap up. We're at about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, we don't want to do another episode here, so we're going to sort of cherry pick the last few to talk about. Um, and then we'll we'll put a, put a bow on the Don DeLillo Wallace letters. So, Matt, what are some remaining letters any come to mind that stand out to you i'm just going to kind of scroll here and see if any jump out to me a couple of notes one in 2001 um 
he goes to France. Wallace goes to France to this mm-hmm. um, monastery. The Buddhist monastic retreat. retreat. Yeah. yeah. And then the corrections comes out and gets a lot of acclaim for Franzen. And at the same time, Wallace is writing uh, the grammar piece for Harper's. So I mm-hmm. think that's a really pivotal time. Um, he's also working on the math book later yes. in 2001, 2002, which... Which he, which he is he, not very positive about to, no. to Willow here. He calls it the wretched math book in a 2002 postcard. Yeah. Um, and then what else? A couple years later, 2004, he says he's engaged. Um, yeah. He also says... He sends, I think, at the end of... In 2004, the wedding announcement card with the pic of him like clicking his heels, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and there's a note in that where it looks like he's like, my ass looks really big in this photo, but I assure you my ass is not really that big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I made a note either in that one or in July of 2004, he makes the uh, the fish don't know it's wet joke. Uh, yes. Two fish right. swimming along. Yeah. Um, so that was on his mind and he's writing the Kenyan commencement speech in late 2004 for yeah. 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also writing that thing host um, about this really awful mm. guy. Uh, <laughs> Radio what, personality. What else? I would say the, the last one that made an impression on me is the one from 2006 where he says that work is going shittily. Poorly, and, slowly. But he likes yeah, being married. Yeah. He likes being married, but he's working on... Yeah. What is the Pale King and it's it's a real mm-hmm. struggle for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh what he what talks about, about Italy and that writer's thing in Italy in that letter, two thousand. Oh yeah, and going to the Isle of Capri, right? Yeah. I think he tried to get ca- Delillo to go, right? Oh really? Like uh, yeah. um who is all there? Franzen, Zadie Smith. Uh Nathan Englander. Um Maybe Eugenides too. Yeah, Eugenides. That sounds familiar. Karen, Karen Green. Yeah. Uh, he um, also calls him. Maybe we said this in the last one. We calls him D two or D squared. Yeah, D squared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. He says in a 2007 July letter that Capri was good, but high socialization factor. Um, it was a dream vacation they couldn't afford otherwise. Also in that, he says, uh, "This is great." Quote, if slash when everyone who's read the Constitution marches on Washington, maybe I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> so as Bush was in his last uh, year of presidency that year. Um, and then and going back to 2003, he makes a mention of going to Diaz Lightning Field, which mm. is an art installation in New Mexico. Uh, it's these huge lightning rods and uh the idea is you go there during a storm and watch lightning strike them um Mm -hmm. and i've always wanted to go and see that so i was sort of jealous that uh wallace went there um Hmm. i don't know if you picked up on that at all but no i missed it i I read it but i didn't know what he was talking about (laughs) well and i sort of felt like anytime he did something cool he wanted to tell delillo about it yeah. Uh, you know, going to France, going to Italy, going to yeah. whatever, going to see this lightning field. It was yeah. like he used that as a pretense or an excuse to write to Don DeLillo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
I like that. There's a part where he says he's going to Tucson in July in 2001. Do you have any hiking suggestions, Don? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Interestingly, in 2002, in December, he tells him that there's much to love in Cosmopolis, that the prose is as finely wrought as anything you've done, that one section knocks the reader out of his footwear. Um, I think there's some good prose in Cosmopolis, but overall, it's not even close to my favorite DeLillo. Yeah, it's not it's not a great book in my opinion at all. Yeah. I think that's, you know, I could go off uh, on a few tangents, but I will probably save that for another time. Okay. Uh, there's one, maybe we mentioned this before, where Wallace says that his dog, Drone, died 10 days before mm-hmm. Christmas. And that it'll be a sad Christmas. Yeah, yeah. that's terrible. Yeah, really terrible. totally. There's an interesting line in the July 2004 letter in which Wallace says that catatonia muteness between fathers and sons is an obsession. And I wrote, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Next to and, this. I, and I also felt Thinking the about same Howell way. And James. Uh, yeah. And DeLillo kind of has that same obsession, but um, I also think I was really struck by that letter in that that was one of the last times that I saw him, I saw Wallace in July, 2004 in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, He came there for reading with George Saunders at public theater. Wow. Uh, That's a good night. It was probably July 1st or June 30th, somewhere around there. And uh, my friends, Martina and Marco were in town. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the event, this is probably on June 2nd, July 2nd, got him to sign a wedding card for me. So um, I was really trying to date this letter, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, did he write this from New York? Right. And like, did he yeah, see, yeah. I think that he only saw DeLillo twice in his life, in real life. But I think, yeah, I think so. He could have seen him at some of these other times when he was in New York city, um, you know, where yeah. DeLillo lives just North of there. So, um, yeah, I was definitely trying to like triangulate that particular. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hmm. There's a great moment in January. I'm assuming 2005. There's no year. If you're feeling avuncular, <laughs> that's how it starts. He's been approached by a university archive about housing a repository of personal materials. It's like, do you have any experience with yeah. this? Yeah. Um, scholars are going to make use of these papers. Have you ever let a library do this for you? If so, why? So Wallace seems really perplexed about this. Uh, and now the great irony here is that, of course, both of their papers are at Harry Ransom and we're talking about them right now. Um, yeah. And I mean, Wallace seems really naive in a lot of that, you know? Um, yeah. Like he doesn't work with a lot of people who sell their archives. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is sort of a working relationship between him and Don DeLillo. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I don't. I didn't really see a response from Delillo in there, you know. Yeah. About that that question, It'd be interesting. We should track that down. What? Did yeah, Delillo you'd have to Delillo. look in the Delillo letters. Yeah. Um. There's a great Christmas card later with no date, the stock text of which says, "May the peace and blessing of Almighty God descend upon you and remain with you forever." And then there's the thing that says, "A certificate of the mass will be offered for the intentions of blank," and then Wallace notes already paid for use as you wish like some sort of cosmic gift certificate (laughs) that's fun it's pretty wild 
Yeah. Um, I think that covers most of the highlights and the last bits there and others we talked about last time. I do want to bring up, there is a, an empty blank file folder in one of these boxes, which my friend Tim Persson had me look up. And it's titled Emptiness Slash Closeness Essay. And there's nothing mm. inside the folder. Do you have any insights on what this is referring to? What this is? I have no idea. Okay. I think it's one of one of the mysteries that scholars will get to solve. Mm. <laughs> I have to think about it. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, Tim's working that, on figuring this out, so we'll see what he comes up with. A lot of that stuff... Uh, uh, turned into parts of the Pale King, you know? Yeah, um, maybe, yeah. Pretty much everything he was doing at that time turned into parts of the Pale King. But, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll have to think on that one. Yeah. Uh, there are some standalone things in there. I should qualify that statement. But um, I think the last thing I want to say uh, for this episode is that, um, you know, I was lucky enough to go to – New York and the memorial for Wallace at mm -hmm. NYU in October of 2008. And um, Don DeLillo was there and of the people mm -hmm. who spoke, um, all of those memorials are collected several places and some in Harper, some in uh, five dials. Yeah. And some um, in the legacy of David Foster Wallace. Right. Right. Yep. And, but the, the, for me being in the room there, like, and I was like right down for, I was like, I want to see this. Mm -hmm. Um, they were all very moving, but seeing Don DeLillo get up there, I mean, he was Don DeLillo yeah. and you know, the first word out of his mouth and sort of, he's a small guy, but like this booming voice of infinity. infinity. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It was very moving. And so, like, I, I still think he probably did the best memorial to Wallace of anyone. Hmm. And that's a testament to how close he and Wallace were in this correspondence. Yeah. And yeah. I really, through that, I do see the power of, of correspondence and letter writing, which I, I personally really value. Hmm. And uh, I, I just want to read, like, this is probably um, too long, but I want to read the last, like, two paragraphs of... DeLillo's memorial for Wallace because it's something that yeah, comes do back. It. It's something that comes back to me every year on mm -hmm. uh, September twelfth. Right. DeLillo says, "We see him now as a brave writer who struggled against the force that wanted him to shed himself. Years from now, we'll still feel the chill that attended news of his death. One of his recent stories ends in the finality of this half sentence." not another word but there is always another word there is always another reader to regenerate these words the words won't stop coming youth and loss this is dave's voice american and yeah, that to me chilling. is like just such the you know his was the shortest piece and like mm -hmm. the it's just such quintessential Don DeLillo yeah. style of writing, but applied towards directly towards his friend. Yeah. Um, Minty, um, fellow writer. I mean, that's, that's really powerful. I think mm -hmm. so. I'll leave it yeah. at that. Yeah, that's good. I like, I like that finish. So I guess we'll say the end of the things we say at the end of the podcast. 
Yeah, tell us uh, if people want to know more about these letters, I would say they should come to Austin, Texas and let me know. Give me a heads up if you're in town, as always. Yeah. Um, I would say a couple of things we don't often say in the podcast, and that's uh, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Um, it actually yeah. helps other people discover the show if they're Wallace fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard people say that, yeah. <laughs> you can also go or leave it on your favorite listening app. I think we're in all major podcasting apps, including Spotify. Um, and if you haven't listened to the show uh, before today or in a long time, you can go back and listen to old episodes at greatconcavity.podbean.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. in addition to that, we're in a lot of social media places. Dave, what is our, our handle? We are at Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to get really specific and email us, we are concavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting emails from people, so fire away with that. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, ideas, ideas for future guests, we love hearing all that stuff. We take it seriously. We take it under advisement. Um, we are also on patreon.com. Uh, we want to thank two new patrons that we got since last episode. Thank you so much to Paul Lapriado and to Steve Lively. You guys are amazing. We want to thank you so much for your support, for helping continue this show, for making it possible. And like I said last episode, that money was really tangibly used in helping cover costs for uh, helping me get to Austin and to the archive and for making this possible. Um, we've got some stuff in the hopper for next year that is also going to use the Patreon funds in a way that will be really significant and helpful and beneficial for episodes and things like that. So uh, huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. You can check us out there. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. We're going to be doing our annual send out for our $3 a month patrons, Matt, coming up quick here. We've got everything in the mail, I think, to your house. Yep. So those people can look forward to some mail here in November and we'll put some spoilers and, and stuff on Instagram in the next little while of things that we got made for that. And as usual, we want to thank of course, Robin O'Neill for her amazing art associated with our show logo. And she's actually got a really big show in Dallas, Fort Worth for the next, I think till at February? Fort Worth modern at the Fort Worth modern. Yeah. It goes through February. It's called we, the masses, we, the masses, um, she has also a pop-up shop on the fort worth modern shop and uh i've already bought some stuff i'm really excited going up there in uh december i'll be up there um and so if you're in fort worth or you can make the trip please do so before february to get a rare glimpse at a lot of yeah robin o'neill's work so i'm so i am so sad this show didn't happen this summer when i was in texas i absolutely would have gone there yeah um it's infuriating to be in new zealand when something like this is happening (laughs) where there's just like no possible way i could afford to get to it um but if you live in that area an adjoining state to texas friggin do yourself a service and go see this show. The pictures of it look amazing. Um, we also want to thank Parquet Courts for their music, Instant Disassembly. That is the intro and outro music. And um, that's pretty much a wrap on episode 49.2. We'll see you next time for episode 50 coming soon. Turn on the
Do you have headphones in, Dave? I got headphones in. Do you have waves? waves. I got waves and lines. (laughs) Yeah. Great. (laughs) If I didn't have headphones in at episode 49.2 right now, I'd be be such an amateur. (laughs) Still am, but...